You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor for the Washington Post. President Biden heads to Valley Forge today to deliver an address to uh, commemorate tomorrow's anniversary, third anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. And Donald Trump continues to fight efforts to keep him off primary ballots in two states. Joining me now for his debut appearance, Aaron Blake, senior political reporter for The Washington Post. Aaron, welcome to First Look. Good morning, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. So what should we expect from President Biden's speech today? Well, I think this is about framing up what he hopes will be a choice election in 2024. Um, There is no secret that voters are unenthused about President Biden himself. Uh, There is is less enthusiasm for him in the Democratic primary, even even though he looks like a very significant favorite there. Um, And and generally speaking, when you have a presidential incumbent running for reelection, it is about them. Uh, that's not necessarily going to be the case this time. We have a former incumbent who has a knack for uh, drawing attention to himself. Uh, it's clear the Biden campaign wants to draw attention to Donald Trump and basically remind people of the things that they rejected in 2020. And I think that this speech uh, is really the beginning of a 2024 that is going to be full of a lot of different kinds of efforts to draw attention to the most likely opponent that President Biden's going to face. You know, how, how do you think this the speech he'll give today fits in with the speech he's set to give on Monday uh, at Mother Emanuel in Charleston, South Carolina, predominantly African-American church um, that was the site of a white supremacist mass shooting in 2015? Yeah, I think it's all part and parcel. I think there's there's no uh, secret why these speeches are being given so close together on on such significant subjects. Um, the first is is obviously an effort to draw attention to the idea that Donald Trump is a threat to democracy. Uh, the second is is part of a growing effort that began with Trump's comments about poisoning the blood, um, that the the Biden campaign was very uh, enthusiastically going after. They want to remind people about the things that they may have forgotten. We have seen polls in recent weeks showing Trump gaining in the general election. There is evidence that people may not have remembered the things that they disliked about Trump uh, back then. Um, And this is really about reminding them of some of the most uh, objectionable episodes that occurred during Trump's presidency and and really keeping the focus on him. Okay, well, let's keep the focus on him and talk about Trump and his multiple and multifaceted (laughs) legal issues. Uh, On Tuesday, he appealed to Maine's Superior Court, that that state's decision to keep him off the Republican primary ballot. On Wednesday, he appealed Colorado's decision to remove him from that state's Republican primary ballot to the U.S. Supreme Court. You reported this week there's also a chance the high court could actually affirm the Colorado Supreme Court ruling despite its conservative majority. What's the likelihood of that happening if if they even agree to hear this case? Yeah, look, I I don't think that it's necessarily likely, but I think that there are legal experts out there who I spoke to who believe that it's not out of the question. Um, There was a paper that really kind of set off this effort from two uh, very conservative um, uh, legal scholars that argued that Trump could be disqualified from the ballot for engaging in insurrection under the 14th Amendment. Um, One uh, professor I spoke to, Rick Hasen from UCLA, noted that these professors are the kind of originalist thinkers that some uh, key members of the Supreme Court might look to for guidance on these things. 
Um, and then also, it's worth noting here that the Supreme Court has actually ruled against Trump a number of times uh, when it comes to uh, legal issues like his claims to immunity, when it comes to uh, things like documents for the January 6th committee. It's not always been an entirely uh, a f favorable court for him, and he's sometimes attacked members of the court, including Brett Kavanaugh. So uh, certainly the court leans conservative. I don't think that People are necessarily expecting that it will take him off the ballot, but there are a number of different ways this opinion could go that might not be exactly favorable for Donald Trump. Um, Maine and Colorado stripped Trump from their primary ballots, citing the 14th Amendment, as you mentioned, and now voters in Illinois um, are petitioning to have Trump removed from that state's primary ballot, citing that he engaged in insurrection. But Aaron, a Washington Post University of Maryland poll about January 6th showed that Republican voters are increasingly supporting Trump's conspiratorial view about what happened that day. But you also write, quote, the events remain a distinct political liability for Trump heading into 2024. Explain. Yeah, I think it's worth noting that the narratives that have been pushed about January 6th, that it wasn't so violent or bad and that these people were perhaps defending a democracy, that has gained traction on the right. But what we also see in this new post-University of Maryland poll is that those views are very much outside of where the majority of Americans are. The majority of Americans believe that Trump probably committed a crime. The majority of Americans believe that January 6th was a very bad thing. And so like with many things, including the indictments that Trump has faced, we need to separate how this breaks down in the primary from how it could break down in a general election context. And while Trump's kind of rewriting of the narrative of January 6th might help him in a Republican primary and marshal support behind this sense of persecution that he's built, it is still something that cuts against him when it comes to the broader public. Now, that doesn't mean he'll necessarily lose, but it is something that gives a majority of Americans, according to basically all the polls, pause about re uh, electing him to the presidency again. Is Trump's best legal argument that he hasn't yet been convicted of insurrection, um, making this ballot move premature? Yeah, there are there are a few ways that we could get to a conclusion without the Supreme Court deciding whether Trump engaged in insurrection. Uh, there's arguing that he hasn't been convicted of insurrection. There's arguing that the 14th Amendment clause at issue here is not self-executing. In other words, Congress needs to pass some kind of a law laying out a process here. Um, and then there's something that a Denver District Court judge found, which is that the 14th Amendment, the language doesn't so clearly identify the president as being subject to this qualification. So there are a number of ways in which the Supreme Court could punt without getting at that kind of central issue. I would imagine that Trump's arguments are going to be focused on those rather than necessarily lit litigating the insurrection uh, portion of this, because that's a very dicey issue for him to get into. Um, but it's it's very much up in the air. There Again, there are many ways in which this could go, many ways in which the Supreme Court could ultimately handle this, if indeed it does take up the case. But I would add that all these states moving in this direction does kind of increase the onus on the Supreme Court to settle this issue in some way. Okay, that, that anticipates what I was just about to ask you, but I've got this skeptical eye over something you just said that Trump supporters say and Trump's legal people say that, well, he's not, the, the president is not directly named in the, uh, um, <laughs> in the section three of the 14th amendment, but it does say, or any officer of the United States, it strains credulity 
that someone would think that the president of the United States, the commander in chief, isn't considered an officer of the United States. I would love to know if you've asked the, historian, the historians you've talked to uh, whether the argument that the Trump legal folks and, and his supporters, whether that even holds water. You know, the, the experts that I've talked to think that there is a, a very cogent legal argument that the 14th Amendment does apply to the president. Um, but these things are very rarely litigated in a way that provides a direct answer. And that gives the Supreme Court some latitude to uh, to interpret. Um, I would also add that that Denver District Court judge who uh, initially, before the Supreme Court stepped in, suggested that this didn't apply to Trump, but also that he engaged in insurrection. So, uh, you know, it's it's a difficult legal issue. But anytime you're dealing with something that hasn't been dealt with, when you when you have all these unsettled questions, it gives judges an out to not deal with the central issues that you're talking about. Um, real quickly, uh, I think you may have addressed this in in a previous answer, but the idea that the Supreme Court would um, allow Minnesota to to keep Trump on the ballot, but allow Colorado and Maine to keep Trump off the pri the primary ballot, um, that they'll let that stand. I I mean, I'm no lawyer, but I see to think from watching the court, they don't like patchwork patchwork policies around the country. Yeah, it's it's a dilemma for the court because they could go with a very limited opinion, basically affirming what Colorado did. Um, but other states don't necessarily have the same processes that allow for a challenge like this to take place. That's why this Colorado decision was the first one to succeed. And we saw efforts in Minnesota and Michigan fail. There is a state law in Colorado that allowed voters to challenge somebody before they're placed on the ballot. Um, so the Supreme Court could feasibly say states can decide this for their primary ballots. And then it would be up to the states to have the laws that would allow that and make their own decisions. But I think when you're talking about such a, an issue of large significance, this is something that is going to come up over and over again. It's something that could come up after Trump would be elected. And the Supreme Court would basically be allowing that to remain undetermined heading into a general election with very big consequences potentially in the future. The future. Three things that everyone should remember. Um, state, election state elections are governed by state election law that these lawsuits are about um, these lawsuits are about keeping Trump off the Republican primary ballot, not the general election ballot. And um, a lot of these citizens who are raising these challenges are Republicans. Aaron Blake, senior political reporter for The Washington Post, thanks for coming for coming to first look. But before we let you go, we've got some exciting news to share to with viewers. You are debuting a new newsletter on Monday called the campaign moment. And it's the Post's only newsletter solely dedicated to covering the 2024 campaign. You can see, look, that's a nice, that's a nice graphic there, Aaron. It is, um, isn't it? Great news <laughs> for all of us political junkies. Congratulations, Aaron. Thank you for joining us today. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Jaha. All right, time for the round table. So let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post where we will find Washington Post Associate Editor Eugene Robinson and Washington Post columnist George Will. Gene, George, Happy New Year. Welcome back to First Look. Glad to be with you. Happy New Year to you, Jonathan. All right, let's start with the, the breaking news this morning. The December jobs report came out. 216,000 jobs created, unemployment rate at 3.7%.
if you are the Biden administration, George Will, are you happy? You're happy with the numbers and unhappy with the fact that the numbers don't seem to be persuading the public. I think I've figured out why this is, Jonathan. Inflation is the big visible daily reminder of a changed condition. And the way the public thinks about inflation is this. If a box of Cheerios, because of inflation, the cost of it goes up X. They think inflation has not been cured until the box of Cheerios costs minus X. That is, the, they think inflation, when it recedes, the costs associated with it should recede. Well, that's not how it works, never has, never will. And that's why the president is getting no credit for otherwise quite good numbers on the economy. Mm-hmm. Gene, what do you think? I think George is right, actually. I think it's it's difficult to to persuade people um, that inflation is coming down when they don't actually see prices coming down, which doesn't happen. You know, wages rise and things even out. But um, uh, so, yes, in, inflation is down. Um, the job numbers are good. Um, I guess certainly the conventional wisdom is that none of this is is particularly breaking through to the to the to the voters uh consciousness um we'll we'll have to see as the year goes on whether it begins to sink in that actually this is a really pretty good economy um or not and that'll have a lot to do with how the election comes out let's talk about um president biden's speech today eugene one of the themes he's expected to hit um today is, is to ask whether democracy remains, quote, a sacred cause for America, as asserted by George Washington. Uh, he will argue it does. But given polling we've seen, is that view, is that view widely shared anymore? Well, you know, there was, there was polling after the, the 22 elections that, uh, that, that seemed to indicate that um, democracy was a, was a, an issue on voters' minds, and that it it helped um, turn what was supposed to be a red wave uh, into not even a ripple. Uh, so, um, so I think there's a there's you know an, an element of smart politics here um, uh, because that does seem to be something that people care about. I think the other part of it, of course, is to make this election as much as possible about Donald Trump. Um, because if it's about Donald Trump, um, President Biden thinks that's, that's favorable ground for him to, uh, to win a re-election on. So, um, you know, if we focus on democracy, focus on Trump. You know, George, this will be President Biden's fifth speech on democracy since taking office. Do you think he's overstating the case? Hey, I do think he's overstating the case, and the way he's making the case is not helping him. I mean, his numbers are absolutely awful. Uh, in one recent poll, USA Today, and I've forgotten the Suffolk College, I guess, last week had his support among African Americans at, I think, 63%. That's stunning. He got 87% in 2020. Uh, no, the since the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1964, Democratic presidential nominees have averaged 85%. So uh, w- whatever 
satisfaction Mr. Biden is getting from saying that he stands like Horatio at the bridge, uh, preventing our democracy from being overrun by the, the, the Goths and, and Visigoths, it's not working. I think the American people in their native calmness say, you know, this country is not that fragile. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, Gene, is there any possible way that 60-something percent, only 60-something percent of African-Americans in the 2024 election will vote for President Biden? Well, I'll certainly eat this tie if that happens. I think just a flat no would be would suffice there. Um, and, and the number uh, I would wager is going to be uh, certainly around that historical average. Um, uh, so I think that you know there's a, that number. I think reflects a, a lack of enthusiasm about uh, President Biden uh, as a camp candidate for re-election. Uh, you see that lack of enthusiasm among uh, Democrats writ large, um, but uh, I expect a lot of those voters to come home uh, if it, if and when, when it comes down to a binary choice. And if that binary choice is against Donald Trump, I think a whole lot of people are going to come home. Uh, George, you wrote a, a provocative column this week, uh, arguing that those worried about a Donald Trump authoritarian presidency returning to the Oval Office should be equally concerned about the current Oval Office occupant. Say what now? Explain. <laughs> Explain. Sure. Uh, modern presidents of both parties are characterized by impatience and arrogance such that they say, look, democracy is about persuasion, but persuasion requires patience, and I'm impatient to do good for the country. Therefore, I'm going to disregard certain things about making appointments and the advice and consent of the Senate. The Supreme Court has had to swat down uh, appendages of the Biden administration, the CDC and others over an eviction moratorium that it had no power to do. Uh, the vaccine mandate that it had no power to order. Uh, on student loans, the Supreme Court has swatted down uh, Mr. Biden's attempt to give $400 billion to a, a minority of American young people and not so young people who have college degrees, but are reliable Democratic voters. And this didn't begin with Biden. It didn't begin with Trump. I do recall uh, President Obama saying over and over and over again, he did not have the power to do by executive order what he then turned around and did on immigration. I do not recall people hysterical about the future of democracy and the threat of authoritarianism. When Barack Obama made recess appointments when the Senate was not in recess. So the, the, there's there's been a kind of slide away from constitutional ethics uh, on the part of both parties. And the idea that Mr. Trump alone uh, is guilty of this vice is, it seems to me, selective indignation. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm only laughing, George, uh -huh. because it's kind of, I, I mean, I, I, I see your argument, but there are a couple things. And Gene, I'm, I'm gonna bring this question, um, get your reaction. You. And I take your point, George, about the you know, impatience 
of the ex executive. But, but what about that impatience being driven by inaction by Congress? And to your point about DACA, President Obama, Obama tried over and over and over again to get Congress to take yes for an answer, and it refused. So, Gene, um, oh, and by the way, those the, the Senate was in, in recess in a pro forma fashion. But, Gene, your, <laughs> your, your reaction well, to, I, to George's look, point. <laughs> no, as George, as George uh, points out, and it's not the first time he's pointed it out, this sort of creeping imperial presidency has been creeping for many, many administrations. This is nothing new. President, he could have written this about uh, any president um, really in my in my lifetime or in, in, in my adult life um, in terms of overstepping the Madisonian bounds of the of the presidency. They've all been doing it. I think in this case, um, to to compare Donald Trump and Joe Biden in that way, he's kind of comparing, you know, apples and cannonballs. I mean, it's it's not it's the the transgressions are um, are, are are very different in 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 kind. Um, uh, and so we're not talking about recess appointments um, when we talk about Donald Trump. We're talking about someone who illegally tried to hold on to the office of. Uh, the president after being defeated in a free and fair election and someone who has announced uh, essentially his uh, intentions to um, to to govern in uh, in in an autocratic manner in, in a um, in, in the sense of autocracy that is different in kind from anything that any prior president has done so um, so I don't think it's a fair comparison, really, although I think George's basic point about the creeping presidency, certainly that's valid. It's just right. it's just it doesn't doesn't pertain to the to the Trump Biden uh, uh, comparison. Right. And George, I just I want to be clear that to Gene's point, your, your basic point, I had I don't quibble with at all because you do have a, a strong argument about the imperial presidency. Let's shift gears and talk about the Republican quest for the presidential nomination for 2024. We're 10 days out from the Iowa caucuses. A couple of polls this week showed former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley gaining momentum uh, narrowly ahead of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for second place. Um, George, what's fueling Haley's rise, do you think? I think she's campaigned successfully. I think that uh, in New Hampshire, getting the endorsement of four-term, very popular Governor Chris Sununu helped a lot. Uh, her stumble over the, <laughs> the origins and cause of the Civil War uh, caused big waves in Washington, but not, I think, out in, in the country where people have other things to worry about. Uh, she does have a very narrow path to defeating Trump. One is uh, he underperforms in Iowa, which I think is apt to be the case. Iowans uh, have a tradition of late deciding and people like uh, Rick Santorum and Mike Huckabee and Ted Cruz have benefited from this. 
Then in New Hampshire, if she comes very close, and even if she wins New Hampshire, then you set up uh, a big showdown in her home field of South Carolina, where uh, if, if she then outperforms and he underperforms and she perhaps beats him, the question then is, is the, the system so front-loaded with primaries and caucuses where winner take all or plurality take most occurs that Mr. Trump will be uh, wounded but not brought down. We're going to find out. But uh, Nikki Haley, long story short, has a path. It's a narrow one, but it's a real one. Um, Gene, uh, I would love to know if you think she stands a chance uh, of beating Donald Trump. But last night uh, during a CNN town hall, um, uh, Governor Haley was asked about the slavery controversy. And one of the things she said was, I had black friends in South Carolina. I mean, you're from South Carolina. Uh, yeah. <laughs> South Ooh. Carolina. Um, I, 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 I kid, I'm sorry. Does she stand a chance of beating Trump? Well, um, you know, okay, Georgia's right. Um, it is an exceedingly, exceedingly narrow path. Um, I think it is almost inconceivable that she beats Trump in Iowa, although, uh, yes, the Iowa caucuses are notoriously difficult to poll, and, and Iowa uh, caucus goers do decide late, and sometimes they surprise us. Uh, they, um, for history, would suggest that maybe they're more likely to surprise us by going with someone who's further to the right uh, than we might have have expected, and that doesn't necessarily augur well for Nikki Haley there. Um, uh, but I, I assume Donald Trump is going to win Iowa. That's my assumption, and so um, all you know, she's she kind of has to bet it all on New Hampshire on, you know, way overperforming may not be enough. She may have to beat him in, uh, in New Hampshire, uh, and then hope that that, um, raises her right now, pretty dismal prospects in South Carolina. Um, uh, any polling, uh, and, and, and my own sort of anecdotal, just talking to people, um, uh, uh, information suggests that uh, Donald Trump is way ahead in South Carolina, and uh, and it will, will be very difficult for her um, to beat him there. Um, but you know, she overperforms in New Hampshire. She perhaps overperforms expectations in South Carolina. But where is she then? She still hasn't won anything, and uh, and I do think. Our primary system, um, especially on the Republican side, is very, very much front loaded. Uh, and so if Trump sweeps those fir first three states, I think it'll be very, very difficult for anyone to stop him, except maybe, you know, maybe, maybe 12 jurors somewhere uh, end up stopping him. But, um, but I, I'm not, I'm not betting a whole lot of money on, on that given the pace. Of right. the legal cases. So, so we talked a lot about Nick, about Nikki Haley and her momentum and can she take about and overperform and everything. Didn't say a word about Ron DeSantis 
Chris Christie, whoever else is, might still be running. George, why are these folks still running if it is so inevitable and so clear that Donald Trump is going to win this nomination by maybe after Super Tuesday? Well, Chris Christie has a New Jersey frame of mind, which is to say he's a brawler and he enjoys the fight. And uh, he thinks he's got a righteous cause in trying to bring down Donald Trump. Polls indicate that if he dropped out, a majority, a substantial majority of his voters would go to Nikki Haley. So at this point, he just objectively is helping the campaign of the man he's trying to undo, Donald Trump. With regard to DeSantis, people just don't warm up to him. I'm sorry. It, 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 someone once said to me, a, a former senator told me the other day, with regard to DeSantis, if you want people to like you, it helps to like people. And <laughs> yeah. Mr. DeSantis mm -hmm. doesn't yeah. at this point. So it, it, he had every advantage coming in. The more he has campaigned, the more people have recoiled from him. Now that's the market has yeah. spoken, the political market. It's time for him to leave the stage. Yeah. With that, we are going to leave it there. George <laughs> Will, Gene, Gene Robinson, thank you as always for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. Same to you. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.